The Spin-Off Podcast Network. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. For me, 2021 was all about discovering we've got no time left to deal with climate change. The Glasgow conference was so important, but mostly it told us if we want to keep the warming of the planet to less than one and a half degrees, we're going to have to reduce emissions dramatically in the next eight years or so. 2030 is when we really run out of time. That means we can't wait for 20, 30 years before we start taking cars off roads and putting people onto bikes and into buses. We need to do things much, much faster. That's what this week's podcast is about on When the Facts Change. We're going to talk about how we can make sure that electricity is generated renewably and quickly and avoid lots of sunk carbon. So, All of these plans we have right now to build new railways, to think about new wind farms, to wait for Rio Tinto to leave the smelter down at Bluff, all of these things, when you look at them closely, actually mean we're not going to be reducing emissions for a good 10, 20, 30 years. Because remember, whenever you build a railway or you build a new wind farm or you build a hydro battery that drowns a valley... That's 10 years of resource consents, plus 10 years of planning, plus 10 years of building, and then 10 years to fill the stuff up and make sure it all works. We can't wait that long. It really has to happen in the next eight years or so. So what would that look like? How could we do it without spending a lot of time and money? First up, we talk to John Campbell, who's the CEO at Our Energy, which makes software for electricity distribution networks, traders, and people who are producing electricity themselves through solar panels on roofs of houses and solves one of the real problems we have at the moment, which is to be able to move people out of their petrol and diesel cars into electric cars, we're going to have to beef up the electricity networks because you can all imagine what would happen if everyone turned up in their Tesla at six o'clock at night and plugged into the wall in their garage suddenly the substation in your suburb just blows up because it can't handle that extra volume. So what you need to do is make sure there's lots of distributed generation. In fact, even using some of the cars as batteries themselves, you can solve that problem. That's from John Campbell. Then we speak to Paul Winton, who is in his day job, a fund manager, but does a lot of work in the activist circles to make sure that we are speeding up our transition to zero carbon. And he talks about what could be done in transport, in particular in Auckland, where the biggest challenge is, how do we get people out of their cars onto cycleways, walkways, buses, and do it much faster, effectively reconfiguring those four to eight lane motorways and roads so that there's only one or two lanes for cars and trucks, and the rest is for people to walk and cycle and use their e-bikes and to jump on the bus and to do it in a subsidised way. It's a huge political challenge, but actually it's much cheaper, it's much faster, it embeds less carbon, and 
means that it could be done inside the next 10 years that we wouldn't have to wait 20 or 30 years. That's this week on When the Facts Change. I'm Bernard Hickey with a podcast on the Spinoff Podcast Network, brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank. To find out how we can speed things up on the electricity front, I spoke to John Campbell, who's the CEO and founder of Our Energy, doing amazing things with software to allow people to trade electricity they might have generated with people who need it who are close by. This is all about distributed electricity, distribution and generation in the same place. Here's John. So Our Energy, um, we're an energy technology company. Um, we've designed and developed um, software that uh, is able to match uh, local production of electricity with local consumption. Yeah, so we can create through that essentially a, what we call a local energy market experience for customers. We do that in two ways currently. We've got our own electricity retail service, which operates in some areas around New Zealand, not nationwide yet. But we also supply our software to other industry participants. And you know, one that I know you're familiar with already is Raglan Local Energy, where we're supplying our software in order to create a local energy market solution for the uh, Raglan Whaingaroa community. So how does that work? If I'm a um, dude with a batch in, in Raglan and um, I've got a big power cord and some sort of box on the side of the house, which is probably some sort of smart meter. Uh, how do I make sure that, for example, I can use some solar power that might be either on my roof or uh, the roof of the guy with more sun than me? <laughs> so tell us how that works. Yeah, so um, the first thing to point out there is no one can physically track a kilowatt, a, a unit of energy. That's impossible. No one, no one can do it. So anyone who tells you they can do that is having you on. But what you can do is that you know the location of where a kilowatt is produced and you know the time period in which it's produced. And you also know the location in which a kilowatt is consumed and you know the time period that a kilowatt is consumed. And so you can create a match you know, in the background um, to do that. So it's a virtual transaction that occurs. And the clever bit, I think, speaking for ourselves about our software, is that it's not trying to match someone's production at 12 o'clock in the middle of the day with someone's consumption at 6 p.m. in the evening. It's matching production and consumption in the same time, in the same location. Yeah? So how does that work if I'm the, um, the surfer in Raglan does that mean? Does that mean I have to um, go online sometime and do the trading, or uh, what? No. So that's great. You know, that's sort of the problem. I guess we've solved in that. You know, we made it pretty easy. That all you have to do is sign up to the Raglan Local Energy offering, uh, and the matching of local production and local consumption that is done for you. I mean, if you're really, and we've got a couple of them in the Raglan community that are early adopter, active people and, and inter really interested in electricity markets. So they do try and manage their battery load or their EV charging to take advantage of when local production is available and things. But 
you know, you can get involved in this community local energy market and almost do nothing, you know, and just be a beneficiary of the system. So what's the advantage of doing it that way instead of simply, you know, um, signing up to one of the big gin tailors or one of the independents and paying a, a set price per kilowatt hour, maybe there's a different time of the day, or maybe you're paying some sort of margin on top of a wholesale price. So why would you do it um, this way? So, um, I mean, in the Raglan local energy example, you know, the, the key there is that the local network, who's well networks, their network pricing is time of use. So they have three different periods during a day with network pricing. But quite often, you know, the major retailers don't actually pass that through to the end customer. So what Raglan Local Energy does is it actually says, well, we will reflect the local network pricing in the retail pricing. And therefore, you will be incentivized. If you're able to use more electricity at times of day when, you know, it's A, locally produced and B, when it's not heavy peak loads on the network, you will be rewarded for that. Yeah, you'll effectively get a lower rate. Because I often think, let's say I'm the surfer in Raglan and my brother-in-law in the house next door doesn't have the solar panels on their roof, but I've decked out my roof with solar panels and I know my mate down the road is in a much sunnier patch and they've decked out their house with solar panels. But I want to make sure that my brother-in-law next door doesn't use that nasty coal-generated stuff from Huntley or even worse, effectively be buying off a company that originally generated the power in Southland. <laughs> How do I make sure that I could get hold of some of that power? I know I can't physically you know, put it in a bucket and take it from house to house. But how do I make, make sure in a market like this that we're in effect trading local with local and um, avoiding all of this, uh, dump it into the network and then pull it out again? Yeah, well, I mean, that's where, you know, one of the things New Zealand did really well, you know, going back over 10 years ago, but we haven't got full value from the investment yet, is we did quite a significant what you call smart meter rollout. So this is the key to a lot of what you'd call broadly the neo-retailers that have come on the scene in the last five years, let's broadly call it that, where you can actually access and use the data that's happening at, at a household level. You know, it enables companies like us and others to actually develop quite smart pricing tariffs and system so you're able to manage your risk a lot easier by having access to that that smart meter data because it's quite exciting um the idea that let's say you've got multiple appliances in your house that are all these days connected to the internet in some form or another or could be and let's say you know we all do get teslas maybe the government gives us one or there's a secondhand one or something. And I want to make sure I don't have to remember to go and plug it in at the right time of the day when the, the power is the cheapest and most available, or maybe it's the sunniest and therefore there's more power available locally. It's quite exciting, this idea that you could have almost AI or um, programs which essentially turn the machines on and off that you could turn on and off and not have a problem. This could be a, a way to essentially get over this tyranny we have in New Zealand where 
we often have a lot of power because of wind or sun at the wrong time of the day. Sort of shifting that power around using smart technology and batteries here and there is one of these solutions to try and um, deal with this basic problem we've got of not enough power to deal with the transition to a carbon zero world at the right time in the right place. Yeah, and I think, look, I think that's a really um, important point and it's sort of the high level um, issue here, yeah, is that we've, we've built an electricity market and a system traditionally, you know, for 100 years from the supply side down to the plug. All of the assumptions and the way the market is built the way suppliers interact with customers, it all reflects that thinking. And we think, regardless of what anyone thinks or does, people are going to naturally gravitate over time towards technologies like solar and batteries and electric vehicles because they just make sense. And and when you do that, what you're actually really fundamentally changing is you're, you're putting loads and use, the networks are being used in a completely different way than what they have and, you know, going back, looking back 100 years. Particularly once you've got um, batteries on the scene with um, quite a few of these combinations of solar panels on the roof and then a battery in the garage that's maybe able to charge a, a car to get around this problem where everyone comes home from work in their Tesla, drives into the garage and all at two minutes to six plugs in <laughs> all of their cars and some poor uh, substation in the suburb goes, <laughs> bang. So how does um, doing these sorts of virtual networks and using panels and batteries get around this sort of issue? Because some of these lines companies are thinking, if all of these cars get replaced with electric cars, we're going to have to beef up our networks. We're going to have to have bigger substations and more concrete and steel running lines all around the uh, the suburbs. Or even worse, we're going to have to underground them, which is expensive as well. So tell us how panels and batteries and uh, virtual markets might help uh, deal with this problem of having to um, completely rebuild or reconfigure your local lines networks to deal with the change in electricity usage. Yeah, the, the point is absolutely valid, yeah? Like, the there's, there's various estimations and work that's gone on around in New Zealand network companies, which basically suggest that if we do nothing while EV and solar and battery investment takes place and we just continue network investment and operations as we've done, we'll actually have to effectively double the size of the networks that we have. Now, double the size of the networks means double the cost of network charges. And the embedded carbon with all the concrete. Yeah, and with the the embedded carbon as well. You know, that's before you even get to that discussion, actually. And the one thing you and I, and I know you're passionate about this issue, we absolutely know as well that the costs don't fall equally or equitably on people either. Yeah, So if you get a doubling of the costs, it doesn't mean that Bernard and John both get double their charges. It probably means that John gets six times the charges and Bernard gets one. Yeah, or, or does it, his charges may even reduce. Yeah, yeah the, the key to these virtual and local markets is saying 
we actually need to engage what you call the demand side, yeah, the customer side. We need to get them flexible with their, their loads. And that doesn't mean that people need to sit at home and be electricity traders. Yeah, they can still go about their normal lives. Um, but we need to be able to control and incentivize how they use electricity, you know, both from a locational point of view and a temporal timing point of view. How far, how far away are we from having intelligent networks, bots, if you like, that are able to connect up all the devices in your house, understand the various um, ups and downs of prices and very finely tune things so that at the end of the day, your monthly bill is actually less than it was before. Yeah, well, look, I mean, it's it's already happening at some scale in other countries. And, you know, I mean, players like um, uh, Solar Zero in New Zealand that you'll be aware of are doing stuff in that space as well. The ability to smart control at a fridge level, at a device level, I think some of that stuff is probably still quite tech utopian, you know, 10, 15 years away. But look... Um, but some things like water heaters and 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 uh, cars. Uh, there's a really good point that actually, you know, with water heaters, New Zealand largely and still does have what you call ripple control technology because it hasn't been reinvested in. And for exactly the, the issue we're talking about, yeah, there's really been no incentive in the market design that we have to lead that technology to be used effectively. Um, what's happened is it's sort of over time, and I know it's a big frustration amongst you know old engineering types who invented and built ripple control. It's tough that it's developed that way. But in a sense, all of the uh, players involved who control the technology at the moment have an incentive to increase the price as much as they possibly can and get you using as much power as, that, as you can. I mean, like any other retailer, you know, when I'm selling burgers, I don't want people to, to eat fewer of my burgers. I want them to eat more, even though I know it's bad for them and it's probably bad for me, but, but that's how I make yeah. money. And so that, that's a really important point. We talked earlier about sort of the retailers and services like ours that, um, you know, the uncomfortable truth for people, you know, in terms of how we resolve problems like climate change and social inequality is that people actually have to behave differently. There is no free pass here. We are not going to lower our carbon emissions simply by building lots of wind farms or flooding valleys or, you know, building big batteries. Yeah, like that's a supply side thinking. It will make margins for people who are investing in those things, but it won't actually resolve the fundamental issues, which is, we need to get our people in communities, our businesses, our schools, our households behaving differently in their use of electricity. Particularly um, for some of these re really big electricity users, you know, you might have a factory um, with a big old pipe going into the network, or you might be a um, some sort of um, manufacturing operation that's got 10, 20 people and a bunch of lathes or whatever it is. 
you actually do care about um, how much power you're using, when you're using it, and how much it costs. And now, with the ability to install panels in places that you might not need, and we've seen the example in Christchurch recently where the airport and the uh, regional authority together um, found themselves a sheep paddock that no one else wanted to be, and I thought, right, let's stick a solar farm on here. Uh, We can supply a lot of electricity for the airport, which, of course, is a, a big user. And, of course, around the airport, there's lots of industrial users of electricity, and we could um, hook into them as well, kill two birds with one stone. Do you see much of that, of people breaking out and saying, you know what, maybe I could stall a bunch of solar, uh, use it, but also sell it to the guy next door who doesn't have a roof that you could put solar on? Yeah, uh, we've got a couple of examples of that sort of thing operating on our platform already. You know, some commercial operators, commercial landlords, who've, you know, decked out their property in in a big solar array and they're actually selling the power that's produced through our platform to A, their tenants who are in the building, um, but B, also other local consumers. So when the power is generating through our software, we're actually able to match that production with people, people's and other businesses' consumption. And what's the economics of that like at the moment? With the falling price of um, panels and installation and the rising price of electricity generated elsewhere, is is there a space opening up now where it just makes economic sense to, to do it that way? It's always very hard to predict into the future what you know wholesale prices are going to do. You know, I, I can certainly, I know from a fact, you know, with those commercial customers that we don't, they made an absolute killing over the past 12, 18 months by selling locally. They, they genuinely, they almost made their investment back in 18 months on, the, on their solar outlay. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's really interesting. The other thing, just finally, I'm keen to focus on is speed. Because the uh, Glasgow uh, conference really, I think, changed the debate. We really don't have 10, 20, 30 years to sort of get our stuff together and build a big honking uh, dam. So how does solar and the use of these networks and distributed um, generation, how does it help solve this issue of doing it in eight years instead of 38 years? Yeah, well, I mean, to your exact point, technologies like solar and you know, even EVs and batteries, yeah, they're, they're modular and they're distributed. We can put them more or less anywhere. We're not actually limited by our imagination or locations. You know, I mean, we've seen even in Auckland, you know, um, Vector have put solar panels over the, the wastewater treatment plant. So to your point, there's lots of <laughs> areas that are underutilized or and and, um, and lots of sun flying around as and well. lots of sun <laughs> flying around fantastic and um, john campbell from our energy who is providing the software to allow uh, lines companies and retailers to um, create virtual networks for power john thank you very much for being on when the facts change yeah pleasure thanks bernard thanks to john campbell there from our energy After the break, we speak to Paul Winton about how we can speed things up in transport. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank's Chief Economist Jared Kerr with his prediction on what we can expect from the housing market and interest rates for 2024. 
We've seen quite a correction in housing across the country. So house prices fell from the lofty levels that we saw in 2021. The Reserve Bank has pushed house prices down by design and by lifting interest rates to very eye-watering levels. I think the housing market has found a bottom and I think we'll see house prices rising over 2024 and into 25-26. The housing market will be better balanced. We have seen a, a surge in migrants, which is adding demand to the housing market. And I think we'll see house prices naturally lift on the back of that surge in migration and uh, hopefully an easing in interest rates later on. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Jared and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has the lowdown on everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. Join some of the superstars of the investment and business world as they share advice from their time in the US so you can make your mahi count in this massive market. The Investment Fix podcast, brought to you by Invest New Zealand. Tune in today. Kia ora, and welcome to Paul Winton on to When the Facts Change Again. Paul, lovely to see you. Hope you're heading into the festive season in good shape. Great to see you, Ben. A bit to do before the end of the year, but heading in that direction. Yes, a time to wind down and relax. But on climate change this year, we learned it's not the time to wind down. In fact, the key message out of Glasgow is that we need to reduce emissions much faster, certainly before 2030. So... How is New Zealand going to reduce its transport emissions in the fastest possible way before 2030? Yes, so if we, if I take a, a brief step back, I think the COP26 in Glasgow was really useful to, to reinforce the message that we need to move incredibly fast and that we're not moving quickly enough. But what it was really doing is actually replaying a message that was played by the IPCC in 2018 in their landmark paper back in September 2018 that said... Look, we need to basically cut CO2 emissions by 50% plus by 2030 um, versus 2010. And that's only if you believe that we're going to create large-scale carbon capture and storage machines that exist sometime in the next decade or so. So the, the, the COP26 replayed that message, but it also had two or three years of inaction on the part of the governments that matter to say... We said that three years ago, and you guys haven't done very much, and you've got to do a load more. So I think that was wonderful in that sense. If you then fast forward to what might we do, the main message, and, and this changes from country to country to country, but in New Zealand, we have two big levers. We have cows or cars. And if we look at the, I guess, the political economy of cows, that's reasonably hard. We also have within the legislation a 10% reduction. So let's just assume that's kind of the path that we will follow, even if we do that, follow that path, 
recognising that the industry has not uh, yet embraced that, then it's all about how do we decarbonise transportation fast. And in short, we need to do one thing. We need to reduce the number of internal combustion engine vehicle kilometres travelled on our roads. And there's a bunch of ways that we can do that. We can firstly either travel a bit less, uh, so shorter weeks, for example, work weeks, or we can uh, travel less far, so we can make sure that we don't have uh, these satellite cities that, you know, in the Auckland example, where, you know, North Hamilton starts to look like Auckland. And once you've got beyond those two drivers and you move into, well, we should be displacing, mode shift is a fancy term, from steel boxes to walking and cycling and recognising that you know, a lot of our trips are really short trips that would be relatively, in principle, could be relatively easily taken by walking or by cycling, including e-bikes. Then after that, you look at moving to uh, public transport. And then the last thing you do in that sort of triangle of stuff you're going to do to decarbonise transportation is decarbonise your vehicle fleet, so electric cars. Unfortunately, the electric cars are the bright, shiny object that everybody points to straight away, but they're an incredibly hard thing structurally to move fast. We have 4 million cars. Getting a lot of them off the road fast is hard. And if we talk about what fast means, in the transportation story, if you believe the pathways of decarbonisation outlined by the IPCC, we need to largely eliminate the use of petrol and diesel for transportation in about a decade, so around 2030-ish. That's not what the Climate Change Commission have said, but it's what the IPCC have said. So then to your questions, there's a lot of context to your question, how might we do that? The really simple answer to this is we need to reallocate existing public space, roads and car parks to the use of active transport, so that's walking, cycling and e-biking and maybe throw a, a scooter in there, and to, to public transport using buses. Now buses, unlike trains, are deployed incredibly quickly. And you can deploy a single unit for a few hundred thousand dollars and it can cover a route that you hadn't covered before. So this is really about figuring out a way to use our existing road space to enhance active and public transport without spending a whole bunch more money. Recognising that rail and light rail you know, might be wonderful backbones for transport but they're mega expensive, have big regulatory hurdles, have big political hurdles, and require you to burn a whole bunch of carbon in concrete and steel before you even get to the start line at 2030, which is when we're supposed to have decarbonised by. So, you know, some people are actually living a long way from the centre of town. How much low-hanging fruit is there in terms of just getting people out of their cars and into walking and cycling, buses and e-bikes? Yeah, so firstly, it is low-hanging fruit, but it is giraffe height. And everything we do here is, you know, is not easy. And I think it's important to set the expectation that none of this will be trivial. We're talking about a transformation in the way we live and the way we move around the space we live in. It's also worth noting that 
there's two different stories at play. There's a rural story and there's an urban story. And roughly speaking, half of our climate has happened in a rural world and half happened in an urban world. So the rural world story is electrify the farm. And, and sure, there's a place for bikes, there's a place for walking, but the distances that our rural cousins live in, for those of us who live in the city, make it a little bit more challenging to get around on a bike. And I think it, it's unrealistic to expect the same solution will play out. And if I just talk about the rural bit, over the next 10 years, it will be relatively easy to electrify massive chunks of the moving around. Now, in particular, if the government chooses to support the farming community who are having a really, really hard time anyway, move towards a lower operating cost model of electrification of their vehicles. You know, it costs a quarter of the cost per kilometre using electricity versus using petrol and diesel. So we need to encourage and support the rural communities to electrify stat. If we then talk about the urban environment, this is an environment where we can migrate many of the kilometres, many of the person kilometres travelled very, very quickly by opening up our streets. And it's that opening our streets and it's the shifting away from this we need to spend a lot of money towards we need to actually open our streets and have not expensive conversations but politically challenging conversations. And therefore our budget should be more about engaging with the community in a constructive way than they should be about putting steel and concrete into the ground. Because we've had this test case, you know, the one at Onahanga, where they tried to shut down a street and get people walking through it. There were some planter boxes put in, but there was essentially a revolt from the locals who actually dragged the boxes away with a forklift and forced the government and NZTA to essentially reopen the road. So how do you deal with that? How do you incentivize people to say, yep, we want our roads to be shut down, we want to be walking to work or taking bikes? That's going to be quite hard to do for a lot of people who, for example, their lives are built around, you know, putting all the kids in the back of the car, taking them to school, driving right across town to work. It's quite hard to make that adjustment. How do you deal with that problem? Yeah, and, and I think it is important to recognize we can't make this harder for people and we can't make it feel like it's harder for people. One of the, the big learnings out of that low traffic neighborhood experiment was that th there was almost no, in fact, I think there might have been no budget set aside for community engagement and, and, and a conversation. So many of that, much of that conversation happened in an unmanaged social media kind of a way, which, and you can imagine how feral that rapidly became. And it was stewarded by a couple of kind-hearted souls who believed deeply in the end game of the LTE and the low traffic neighborhood, but who had absolutely no air cover from the grown-ups. And if we think about where we need to go on this, it needs to shift away from an engineering mindset to a community mindset. So we need to be funding and actually putting real money and real skills into people that can engage with the community in a constructive way and paint a picture of what might be. Two other things that are coming out internationally are. One is, it's very hard for people to imagine the end state for their community before it happens. Like you can consult all you want, but until people experience the fact that they no longer need to drive their six-year-old kid to school because she can now walk, you just don't get it. You know, so people out of that experienced having half an hour extra a day that they couldn't imagine otherwise. So 
you, you actually need to do these things and then consult afterwards. And that has been demonstrated many, many times around the world. You do it and then you learn what didn't work. So you experiment and then you tweak. Not you, not, you don't ask permission in the hope that people will embrace this quite significant change. The second theme that's coming out internationally is leaders, and, and I'll point to Hidalgo in France, who's now been re-elected and is now going for the presidency in France, are being re-elected following the implementation of these plans that open up streets. So understandably, they go in, they pull out, in Paris's case, 70,000 car parks, and you've got to believe that's going to be a lot of my costings out there that are going to really oppose this thing. But once these people have actually put these plans in place and people have experienced it, consistently the message is it's actually better. It's actually a better community. It's a better way of getting around. It's a better, it's a better lifestyle. And that leads to, importantly, the reinstatement of politicians who had taken that stance. So initially seen as high risk, but they gained the political support through this. And we can now look to maybe two, three, four years worth of evidence to, that support politicians making these seemingly brave moves to a better world and actually staying in their jobs afterwards. Actually, you make these changes and people live a different world and a better world and you're back in again. And, and I think we need to shift the narrative that this is political suicide to make the changes that are climate positive. Because you could argue, actually, that there is a way for the extreme left and the extreme right to come together on this. Because on the right, you've got people who have said traditionally, we don't need railways, we can't afford light rail, it's all too expensive, you're all too anti-car, we don't want the change, we don't want the orange cones <laughs> messing up our city. And then on the left, you've got people saying, well, actually, we need these railways to give poorer people better, cheaper transport, and the rich should pay for it when actually you could have those two sides come together by saying, well, instead of spending all this money and time and embedding all this carbon in big tunnels and concrete and steel for new railways, instead we just use the existing motorways, we reconfigure them for walking and cycling and bikes, leave some space on there for Mike Hoskins to drive his Ferrari up and down, and we're all fine because it's much, much cheaper. And the guys at Treasury will say, brilliant, we didn't have to spend any money or as, nearly as much money. Do you think there is a way, perhaps, that there is a political solution where you bring together unlikely allies to achieve the same thing? I think there's absolutely an opportunity. And to some extent, we saw that with the recent decisions around how we uh, roll out houses in our neighbourhood. And I think there's absolutely an opportunity here, which is we might roll out light rail, for example, and it might be a great thing, but we don't need to do that in the interest of climate change. And so there is absolutely a scenario here where we take cars off the road and give people a better transport experience for moving around their neighbourhoods by walking and cycling and allow, allow those that genuinely do have a need to drive a car of any form around with less traffic. So what we're seeing increasingly is, and, and we know this in basic maths, is that cycleways and bus lanes move way more people through per linear metre of roadway than cars. Like, it's just a better way to get people around. So if we can shift people to this other mode of transportation, 
those that absolutely do need, do need to travel around in a car, which tends to be aligned with the story from the right at the moment, will work really, really well. And it also supports the, the story that tends to be more to the left, which is around equity, safety, and health, all of which are supported by public transport, which could, in fact, be significantly supported by the government of some form, including making it free, and the use of active transport modes. So there's a, there is a real opportunity to bring those two together, but those many of the arguments are currently being, in some cases by design, conflated. So how would you actually encourage people to take these things up? So free public transport is one way to do it, but what about subsidies for e-bikes and e-buggies? Uh, because right now, for example, you can buy very cheap cars from Japan or ones that have been imported and are used here, you know, maybe $3,000. That's the average price you pay on Trade Me for a used car. Whereas you might have to pay $4,000 for an e-bike. How do we make sure that people take out these options? Yeah, we should absolutely be supporting the rollout of bikes and e-bikes in the same way that we are doing with electric cars at the moment. So an investment in bikes of a similar scale would create demand for the infrastructure that would create political support for the handing over of those streets. And we know that's happening now. We're at a point now where the number of e-bikes coming in is on par with the number of cars coming into the country. So we're in this massive, this ridiculous curve where this is kind of going to sort itself out anyway because there's going to be so many bikes around that um, we're going to have to figure out a way for them to coexist on the current tarmac. Uh, in addition to that, I mean, there's two obvious other things. One is we need to make it much more expensive to bring in these new to New Zealand vehicles. We need to put a stick on that. And, you know, th those cars that are coming in, we're talking... 10, 20, 30,000 dollars secondhand cars coming in from Japan. So we need to, to really put a lid on the importation of anything that uh, has only petrol or diesel to the point where we're not really bringing them in in about three to five years. In addition to that, we need to have a sinking lid on what's effectively free or low cost parking. You know, if I think about my grand piano, I don't have a grand piano, but if I had one, it would be frowned upon for me to put it in the street outside my house and to just use that as a backup to my lounge. But I can put my car in that same place at no cost. Now that's a bit crazy. So we have this free allocation of space for one type of steel box. And, and that is a, an artifact of history in the same way that you know we allow alcohol, but we don't allow cocaine. You know, we allow smoking. So, you know, but equally, it's something that needs to be challenged. And around the world, we're seeing it being challenged by either the stripping out of parking and or increases of cost, either where it's public space, gently rising the cost of that, or in many cases, you know, if you have a private car park, you pay some sort of tax on a, for example, annual basis for those. And, and over time that starts to shift people away from that mode towards the other mode. So you're talking there about some quite progressive political thinking, but are New Zealand's sort of middle New Zealand really there yet? 
because there's a lot of politicians who like to wait for the public to get ahead of them. No one wants to be at the bleeding edge of public opinion. They prefer to be more of a fast follower. So how does our politicians, how do they get ahead of the public? Or maybe they just have to wait for a bit and the public will get ahead of them. Where is the public on this? Yeah, this is a good question. So we um, ran a, a survey in September, October on the six New Zealands, which is an update. It's a research we bought from George Mason and Yale Universities down to New Zealand. We ran in early 2020 and again uh, a couple of months ago. And I had hoped going into this that, that we would see this massive shift in uh, citizen sentiment supporting and demanding uh, climate change. And in spite of us having lived through you know, fires in Australia, floods in Australia, I mean, pick a global drama, there was almost no shift in the support for climate action on the, on the part of uh, the New Zealand populace. And what that tells us is we've got to question the argument that we're going to wait until the population demands this because we know we have a hard stop in science on how quickly we need to decarbonise. And if we look back at what's happened over the last couple of years, it's just not moving. And, you know, the conclusion that I would run to is we simply, and leaders simply cannot wait until public sentiment is demanding they act. They actually, in the interests of future generations, need to act now. And if we come back to this whole idea of leadership, uh, leadership is doing stuff in front of other people. And it's about doing stuff that leaves you feeling a little bit naked and a little bit vulnerable for a while. It's not about just doing the stuff that everybody wants you to do. So we know that we can do that because we've done it in a global best practice way under COVID. So now we need to apply the same learnings and the same public engagement learnings to climate change and drive these policies. And these policies are available in an almost pick and mix kind of way from around the world. We know what we need to do. So the leaders now need to actually lead and stop deferring to the population and stop asking the population to tell them what to do or else we're just never going to get there. Because this really is the last chance now. If we're going to do anything before 2030, we have to have changes both at the local government level and at the central government level. And the next opportunities are local government elections in 2022, around October, and then central government elections in October, September of 2023. So do you see any of these sort of more progressive leaders with these more unusual ideas coming forward to try and get ahead of the public or uh, drag public opinion along and maybe get into a position to actually make decisions in 2022 and 2023? Are those politicians there? There's two stories at play here, generally speaking. There's a central government story, and that is a story of woe and despair. And that's because they've largely adopted or hidden behind the recommendations of the Climate Change Commission, who choked at the line and created really dodgy accounting, is a bit of the only way to describe it, um, in setting their advice and their targets for 2030-2035. Central governments largely embrace them, and what that means is they have woefully low decarbonisation targets. The other story is groups like Auckland Council 
who are absolutely at the front end of this. And they are, I'd argue, two to three years ahead of the target setting and the work to understand what's needed in decarbonisation. If I just run through rough numbers to support those two camps, in agriculture, uh, the central government is saying 10% by 2030. Auckland is saying 15% reduction by 2030. Stationary energy, which is gas and heating, Climate Change Commission government saying 33%. Auckland Council is saying 65%. Transport, central government under Climate Change Commission is 6% reduction. Auckland Council is a 64% reduction. So you're seeing these absolute leading lights in a couple of pockets. And so I think Auckland is leading the charge, has done the hard yards under their TERP Transport Emissions Reduction Plan, which will be encouraged by litigation against uh, the um, RLTP that came out earlier this year, is an example of the possible. And they're working through the numbers now. They, for example, have come to the conclusion that they probably need, call it 20 times more cycling per person in eight years than we have today. So we need to be Copenhagen by 2030. So I guess there's two things that could happen. Central government could catch the Auckland and could end up actually leading. And, and that might be supported by litigation against central government being run and kicking off on the 28th of February uh, next year. The other real risk to us is that Auckland and similar leader, similarly leading councils catch the central government and choose to back off the aspiration and actually fall back into a not even an also-ran kind of a state. Um, and, and that's a real big risk. And if I look to those next elections, which are you know the, the local government elections you mentioned, councils like Auckland, they're going to be coming out with aspirational and climate-aligned plans, are going to need to be spending 10 times what they spent figuring out the plan on communicating the plan. And if they fail to do that, they will probably fail. So I think the next six months through the litigation against both Auckland Council and the Climate Change Commission and James Shaw, followed by uh, the election, the local body elections, will really tell us what this decade's going to look like. You know, we've had a lot of last chance saloons, but it does feel like the last chance saloon is coming up through 2022. Thank you, Paul. Great to chat about the year that was and the year ahead Good luck for 2022 and have a wonderful summer. Wonderful. Thanks, Bernard. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, Jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.